Today's episode of the Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, offering innovative Gibco solutions to support your stem cell research workflow. Welcome, everybody, to episode 57, Curiosity. I am Dr. Christopher Vassano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. My man, Yos, what's good, homie? Oh, good. Um, that's an interesting title there, Curiosity. Uh, I like that. It's cool, right? We got a different one for everybody today. Yeah, this is sort of out of our bailiwick. So uh, this is the first time we're doing a non-scientist on the Stem Cell Podcast. So uh, this should be uh, quite an interesting interview for us. Um, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. It's a little bit out of our usual norm. So we're going to go really science heavy on this roundup today just to make up for it. What do you say? Yeah, we got Dwayne Fernandez, who I met at a, at a conference. He's going to be our um, he's going to be our guest. Dwayne is a is a director, a writer. He is a photographer. Uh, it's really well known in his industry. And what really drives him is uh, curiosity. Uh, you know, which is the same thing that drives scientists. Uh, he wants he really just wants to get a better understanding of what drives people to do what they do uh, and uh, found that really interesting and we'll, we'll 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 interview him and ask him a bunch of questions about his life his career and how it intersects with science so looking forward to that Yos. I think uh, it'll be a nice break from from the science interview um, and and I think I hope people will find it to be as interesting as we did speaking of uh, uh, conferences we just came off the NICEF conference uh, good to see you in New York again over at uh, Rockefeller University uh, some yeah really, some we really did, man. Awesome, we had a good time good to see you too uh, we, awesome uh, talks we, too the talks are great the conference is great and then the fun was always great yeah we went out uh, Paul Paul Tazar and I had our truffle burger. I think I put pictures up online. I was I was trying to tweet and and do some periscoping there. Um, you know, we 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 try to get as many people involved. Right now, I'm um, truly trying to get everybody involved on social media so they can see us and how we do this. I, I know it's you just hear our voices and you want to see us a little more. So we're we're starting to build a YouTube presence and we're online right now and we're trying to do some things. So it's really fun, man. We got to bring everybody together and go out for a night in New York. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so let's let's see. Okay, so we are the Stem Cell Podcast. We are presented by Thermo Fisher. We're the official podcast of the ISSCR. I'm live right now on Periscope giving everyone a preview of this episode. I'm going to shut it off in a minute or two. Uh, I just want to give everyone a little uh, snippet. You can get us on um, uh, StemCellPodcast.com, all the episodes. You can, um, you can get it from uh, iTunes. You can get it on Stitcher. You can really get it anywhere. Um, and so I remember to, remember to sign up at StemCellPodcast.com for the newsletter. Uh, really, what I really want to do right now, though, Yosef, is I want to announce the launch of, and I'm doing this live too on Periscope. I want to uh, announce the launch of our stem cell, the first stem cell forum. It's gonna, it's called Stem Cell Chat, 
and it's at stemcellchat.com. So basically, this is now live. You guys can go to stemcellchat.com. You sign up. It's free. You get a you know a little um, user account, and then you can go on and contribute to the discussion. So basically, you'll go on. It's pretty self-explanatory, and we even have a how-to video thing there so you can learn how to use it. There will be threads. There'll be different categories like the papers we discuss in the podcast. There'll be technical, um, you know, technical threads if you want to talk about your work, um, stem cells in the news threads, and you can go on. You can add your own discussion. You can contribute to discussions. And we really encourage everybody to go on. This is the first dedicated stem cell resource to 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 talk about stem cells and and, and interact with people in the field. We're going to use it as a way you can continue to you know continue the discussion on what Yosef and I talk about on the podcast and what's going on in the field. It's free, so there's no reason why you guys shouldn't go out there and sign up. StemCellChat.com. It's very simple to remember. Tell all your friends, tell your lab mates, uh, and tell people that you know that are interested in stem cells to go on to StemCellChat.com and check it out. Yo, so it's really cool. Uh, I, I really hope it takes off and really helps people contribute to you know to more into the field. Yeah, it's a first of its kind too. So uh, hopefully get some awesome discussions on there maybe some some controversies going on which hopefully we'll discuss in some of the roundup i got some news for you coming off uh, fresh out the presses so uh, uh, uh well, i guess we should go right into the roundup right now yeah. i'm going to sign off on periscope if you guys want to listen to the rest of the episode it'll be out tomorrow uh tuesday november 10th so make sure you go download it there and yos take it away my brother talk to you guys later okay I, well since i brought up the uh controversy apparently uh Har- haruko o- obokata uh, the stap cells uh, story person. Uh, so I guess this is hopefully the final chapter, but apparently she was stripped of her doctoral degree from Waseda University due to copyright infringements. Uh, so I, I, I think she like copy and pasted uh, the definition of stem cells from the uh, NIH website. And that was one of the many flaws in her uh, doctoral thesis. So uh, I guess that's the final chapter of that whole stap story and controversy jeez man uh, so yeah i guess i mean, just use that as a technicality to just do something you know yeah just to get rid of it yeah so uh this another one wasn't really published i saw this on uh national geographics website they scientists have captured the f- uh footage of a hawk bill sea turtle this rare uh sea turtle that is uh it emits neon green and red light so this is the first reptile glowing reptile known on the planet so uh you know nature has done this before i guess uh george church or somebody could go around and use CRISPR to create glowing reptiles but this is the first known and only known case of a glowing reptile uh is it like the like a gfp like do they know what it is yeah it looks like gfp and rfp on this yeah we'll post the video to it like there's a cool uh youtube video that i'll i'll put in the email link i like glowing animals yeah, it was uh, made in late July. This uh, guy from uh, David Gruber from the City University of New York and his team captured uh, some some nice video footage of it glowing at night. So it's pretty cool. Uh, there was a common sense report uh, showing that teens and tweens uh, engage in media for an average of nine hours a day. Did you Dude, see this? I saw that. That's I, that's crazy to me. Yeah, but I mean, media was like also like music, so it wasn't like they were just staring at. So it wasn't just hours. a screen. Yeah, but just like engaging looking. technology in general, you know. So media oh, could okay. be. Okay, well, that makes more sense. I-, I would imagine it to be higher, maybe. 
Yeah. Now, how many hours are we up? I'm just trying to figure that. Like, we're up 12, 15 hours a day, something like that. I don't know. So staggering amount for uh, wow. a teenager. But anyhow. let me ask you this question real quick, dude. How how many hours do you think you spend on media a day? <laughs> you know, it's probably about nine hours. So <laughs> <laughs> it's probably more than that. I mean, yeah. our job requires us to be in front of a computer too. So you know. Yeah, that's true. We're engaging in media. But teens, te- tween. How do you define tweens? Twenties? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's younger. The the teenage. It's like pre teenager years. I don't even know these uh, so, terms anymore. That's yeah. how I know I'm not one of those. Yeah. Um, there's a, this month, November, there's an acoustical society of America meeting that, uh, where they're discussing using sound to disrupt the mating signals for Asian citrus psyllid, uh, which, uh, to save the citrus crop. Crop. Remember in that movie, uh, Trading Places, where they were betting on the citrus crop. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, this was, uh, you know, this counts. This this psyllid. Uh, it's like a locust. It it, it it counts for over two billion in losses yearly. So what they're using is a vibration trap to hijack their mating calls using a piezo electric buzzer and a microphone wired to a microcontroller. And I just like this study because it's a a novel uh, sa- like a sound pesticide using sound uh, waves to as a pesticide for these hemipteran species or tree bugs tree bugs which use acoustic communication to mate so um seems like a clean pesticide sort of um method so uh, i want to highlight that uh getting back to some real real science some meaty neuroscience for you chris i got a neuron paper where they reprogram neurons in the cortex from layer two three two slash three uh the colossal projection neurons to corticofungal projection neurons from layer uh layer five did i say fungal fugal fugal cortical fugal i Uh, was like fungal yeah, <laughs> these neurons recruit parvalbumin sensitive, uh, po- sorry, parvalbumin positive interneuron synapses and uh, essentially rewire the brain. So, uh, using, wow. uh, yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. That's pa- Paula Arlotta's lab. Where? Uh, I forget which lab it, it was came at, out of. It's, it's Harvard, right? I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, it's definitely a Harvard lab. Um, there was a, you know, the company Selectus, Selectus, uh, no. they, they report It's one of those, uh, cart therapy, the, the cart, yeah. you know, the chimeric antigen T cell receptors. So, uh, they, th- we have an episode on this actually with, uh, Maria, I Maria Themely, yes, Themely. Yeah. We always screw up her name. I know. Anyhow. So, uh, they reported this month, the first human use of, uh, an off the shelf cell, cell therapy for an incurable leukemia they use designer immune cells uh so this one-year-old uh child got a one ml intravenous infusion of cells and after two months this child is now cancer free uh she had a rare cancer uh leukemia and uh she's home now from the hospital so they use talons so not crispr but a little bit of older uh gene editing technology to edit t cells from a healthy donor to make them both invisible to leukemia drugs and to target and fight the leukemia cells so uh this is the first wow. sort of cart therapy like making it into the clinic so their stock obviously rose like crazy after this um uh, let's see here. There was a Nedgem stu- study, the New England Journal of Medicine, showing that Olaparib, a drug developed to treat women's cancer, uh, like a uh, you know the ovarian and inherited BRCA mutations, yeah. uh, can benefit one third of men with advanced 
prostate cancer, including many who did not inherit cancer genes, but whose tumors had acquired defects in DNA repair. So this, uh, they out of 16 out of 59 men in a trial showed that the drug halted prostate cancer growth. And it's uh, one of those P, P-PARP, uh, the PARP inhibitor. Yeah, uh, you know that. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. a PARP inhibitor uh, that's been used in the past for women's cancer. So uh, you can find that in Nedjum. New England, uh, yep. Uh, there was a new uh, nature communication study where they found an inexpensive drug used to prevent asthma attacks can rejuvenate aging brains. So a six-week course of a drug called Montelukast improved memory and learning in 20-month-old rats, uh, which is the equivalent of a 65- to 70-year-old human, with their performance on uh, and cognitive tests. So uh, their performance on cognitive tests, you know, the water maze test, where they're like looking for the memory of uh, where to land. Um, And it matched uh, that of younger animals. So the drug seems to work by reducing inflammation in the brain and encouraging the growth of new neurons in the hippocampus. They also found that the blood-brain barrier is partially restored because, you know, it leaks over time with age. So they're hoping to use this as an Alzheimer's drug in patients. So uh, That's like a very – that's also an allergy drug that people take routinely. Yes. Yes, exactly. Wow. Uh, Imagine that, just taking a drug every day for allergies and then finding out that it helps your brain out. It's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, there's a PLOS-1 study, the Public Library of Science, uh, one study revealing the first global estimates of herpes simplex virus type 1, the one that causes cold sores. Uh, the estimates for prevalence in region from people age 0 to 49 in 2012. So these are the numbers for America, about 49% of women have it and 39% of men in America. In Africa, it's 87% men and women. Eastern Ooh. Mediterranean, 75% uh, both men and women. In Europe, it's about 69% women and 61% men. And in Southeast Asia, 59% women and men. And Western Pacific, 74% men and women. So uh, it's pretty prevalent, uh, the, the herpes simplex one. Uh, so, I thought it'd be more in this country, no? Yeah, we're on the lower scale. Uh, so you can find that in PLOS 1. There was a molecular psychiatry study showing that uh, fi- a five-week treatment uh, with uh, autistic children uh, who got the synthetic oxytocin can significantly improve social, emotional, and behavioral issues. Uh, so you can find this in molecular psychiatry, that like love drug, the oxytocin. Yeah, that's been around for a minute in the field. It's gotten some good results. I mean, it makes yeah. sense. Autistic kids are more introverted and that helps them socialize, you know? Yeah, you know all about it. Uh, there was a cell stem cell study. Used, uh, they used nine small molecules in a stepwise fashion to turn human cortical astrocytes. They used a size cell line called HA1800 uh, for cortical astrocytes to turn them into neurons in eight to 10 days. So the epigenetic re- regulation involves activation of NeuroD1 and NeuroGenin2, and they grafted them, and they survive in vivo and integrate into local circuits, but it does not work on human spinal astrocytes or in the mouse. So this is a human cortical astrocyte-specific conversion. And uh, some of these nine drugs, you'll recognize some of these, LSB, you know, uh, the yep. dual SMAD inhibition, CHEER, which activates when DAPT, that uh, knocks down was a uh, notch receptor, uh, yep. v- VPA, the valproic acid, yep. uh, sort of loosening up the DNA, and SAG, 
you know, the uh, Sonic. Yes, Sonic uh, Agonist. Hedgehog, yep, and Permorphamine, and then TTNPB. This is a uh, retinoic uh, acid receptor agonist, and then TZV, which is like a rock inhibitor. So you recognize n- uh, most of these nine small molecules, and you can find that in cell stem cell. Uh, real quick, I want to hi- I know I'm running out of time, but I just got to highlight a couple more, uh, where they showed that a woman from Perth, you know, Australia, her name is Joy Milne. She can smell Parkinson's disease. Yeah. I was, this real? Like what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so th- she said she, she first noticed it in her husband who developed Parkinson's, she could smell a musky scent. <laughs> and she identified 11 out of 12 people, six with and six without. She was like perfect. Uh, and then that, that, you know, one out of 12 person that she identified as having it, uh, turns out eight months later, they, they got Parkinson's. And they were like, this was a control patient. No way. And she was like, no, this person has Parkinson's. Eight Dude. months later, she was right. So they're looking for Dude, that. I don't want to hang out with this woman. <laughs> This is fascinating to me. I, I might just have to drop the mic on that one. But actually, no, I'm going to leave uh, one more on uh, Society for Neuroscience because it's still fresh, uh, where they use several uh, groups are using SOX2 and MASH1 overexpression in the cortices of mice. They found that 15% of glial cells turned into neurons. And another group used NeuroD1 again uh, in the cortices of mice that experienced stroke and found that glial scar and atrophy in the cortex was reduced. So... A lot of this in vivo, you're you're into this stuff, right? Uh, yeah, in man, vivo that's cool. reprogramming. So uh, that's that's probably going to be coming out on the pipeline. Uh, so I'll leave it there. How about you? What's Dude, do you going? think we can get this PD smelling woman on the show? I would really <laughs> like to know, like. That would be amazing. More about this, dude. Yeah, I gotta. I, 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 you gotta wonder what that smell is like. It's yeah, like, like what is that smell? Like, the reason why because. Isn't there been a link with like olfactory and 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 yes. Parkinson's? Yes, right? I just read a study uh, about there are these four uh, thing like pre-symptomatic uh, signatures, which is the REM uh, sleep behavior disorder, the, the low uh, olfaction or hyperosmia. They call it. hypo hyposmia. Hyposmia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hyposmia. Uh, there's depression and uh, what was the oh uh, constipation. So about half of all patients get uh, one of these four symptoms before uh, developing Parkinson's, and I think that the strongest correlation was hypo- hyposmia. So uh, that's, I mean, she obviously aye, doesn't aye, have aye. it, but she's able to uh, sniff it out, as they say. So it's like crazy. It's like those dogs that could smell cancer in people. So uh, you sit next to her on the train, and she gives you a dirty look. I'm, I'm getting out of there. I'm well, like, cons- <laughs> there's no, there's no biomarker, so she may have. Found no, there's it. not. Yeah. She might be it. Yeah. She might be the way. We can't lose her. Or you're going to have to breed her out, maybe, you know? That's so bad. Uh, all right, so stem cell stuff. Uh, this was, uh, I, I saw this in a, in a news r- report here. It's Royal Perth Hospital in Australia to regrow patient's skull tissue by 3D printing stem cells. Um, so they, so I guess, like, Australia's been steadily building a reputation as, as home to excellent medical 3D printing innovators. I didn't know that. I'm not really into the 3D printing world. It still kind of weirds me out that you can 3D print cells, but... Uh, you can, and in stem cells, it's becoming a bigger industry. And so they uh, got a grant, the Royal Perth Hospital, to uh, start to help you know build this program of 3D printing uh, for a procedure, printing procedure for regrowing skull parts using stem cell technology. 
Um, I guess the goal is to implement 3D printing and stem cell technologies into skull restoration procedures. So like cranial reconstruction, I guess, is very difficult, uh, especially for patients with severely damaged skulls. They have a lot of damage. They're currently using titanium plates, which can cause infection or plastics and ceramics. But so this grant will be, they hope that they'll be able to regrow their own skull pieces using stem cells. And the team involves a surgeon, a neurosurgeon, a principal scientist who's working with this uh, Australian 3D, pre- 3D printing company in Vienna. Um, and so they're hoping that it's going to really help with these patients that have these severe uh, skeletal kind of skull defects. So 3D printing of stem cells for skull. Um, this was in Nature Medicine. This is a new studies question the treatment of female infertility with stem cells. So this has been going on for a while, and it has been claimed that the treatment a treatment for female infertility will be available by stem cell therapy. But I guess this new a new study by Swedish researchers from the University of Gothenburg and Karolinska published in Nature Medicine uh, some questions whether new egg cells can be produced using stem cells. Remember that US people always wanted to make egg, make sperm mm. from stem cells. Yeah. So they're saying that it might not be as hopeful as we think. Researchers have hoped that you can generate these new eggs and they can be used to treat infertility. I guess since 2004, there have been researchers who have claimed uh, that they found egg stem cells in mice and humans. Uh, and a new treatment has been since launched by the U.S. Com- this company, OvaScience. Um, and I guess in this new study, Professor Q. Liu and his colleagues questioned whether stem cells can generate new egg cells. He led this, uh, this study together with Professor Uti Hovada, and they assert that the procedure of isolating stem cells is aspecific and also that the stem cells have not been able, capable of forming real functional eggs. So this still is a longstanding over 10 years question. Can we, will we ever be able to make eggs from stem cells? And these guys seem to think that might not be the case. Mm. Uh, this is in a, a Nature spinoff journal called um, uh, Spinal Cord, and it's uh, co-transplantation of autologous bone marrow, mesenchymal stem cells, and Schwann cells through cerebral spinal fluid for the treatment of patients with chronic spinal cord injury. And it's basically a safety and possible outcome clinical report. This is a phase one clinical trial, and the objectives of the study were to assess the safety and feasibility of using these bone marrow stem cells and Schwann cells. Schwann cells are cells of the nervous system that are used to wrap, produce the myelin that wraps up uh, the insulates the neurons and allows them to send their signals. The Schwann cells are involved in myelinating the peripheral neurons, the neurons that come out into your legs and into your arms, and the oligodendrocytes, which you hear us talk about a lot in the show, are the ones that do it in the central nervous system, um, you know, when we talk about MS and things like that. Uh, so they had six subjects with these complete spinal cord injuries due to trauma, so a, a really severe injury. They received these autologous co-transplantation of these MSCs and Schwann cells through lumbar puncture. And then they just turn, They looked at the neurological status of these patients, and they followed them over 30 months. Uh, the radiological findings were unchanged without any evidence of neoplastic tissue overgrowth. Mm. Uh, and one patient was changed from A to B, and I guess, you know, in a downgrade. In addition to the improvement in indexes, especially bladder compliance, which is blah, blah, blah. So basically what they're saying, that there was really no adverse findings in their first phase. So that's good. That's, oh, remember, everybody in the clinical world, then a phase one of a clinical trial is purely safety. I mean, you hope to see some efficacy, some good things, but they really want to just know, did it hurt the patient? Did the patient get any worse? And in this, uh, they did not. And this is for a severe spinal cord injury, so so that's promising. We'll keep following that as it goes on. Um, this was in, um, this was a, a, I thought this was a cool, this was in stem cell reports, there was a cool name. The, the gene found that regulates stem cell number production so this is a team from USC, 
Oh, speaking of USC, rather than thinking of this, congratulations to Justin Achita, who won a Robin, Robertson Investigator oh, yeah, Award. Yeah, Our buddy yeah. Justin, congratulations. Yeah. He's at USC. He's been on the show. Uh, that just made me think of that. So this, these, not Justin's team, but another team at USC has described an important gene that maintains a critical balance between producing too many and too few stem cells. It's called Pricky. <laughs> P-R-C-K, P-R-K-C-I. And the gene influences whether stem cells self-renew to make more of themselves or differentiate. So it basically regulates their decision-making. Um, without pricky, the stem cells favor self-renewal, generating large numbers of stem cells. Uh, and when you put it, put more pricky, they start to differentiate. Um, and then I guess they saw that um, it says loss of pricky can also encourage stem cells to differentiate into the progenitor cells that form neurons, heart muscles, and blood. So just another gene that helps regulate the balance between stem cells and differentiation. Was this human or mouse? Uh, this, this is a human, I believe. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Let's see here. Never heard of it. doesn't really say. This is more of a release I'm reading. It doesn't really say, but we'll put the paper up. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Okay, so this is in scientific reports. In vitro, which means in culture, optimization of nanoparticle cell labeling protocols for the in vivo or in the body cell tracking applications. So this is another way where if we want to put cells into an organism, into a body, how can we find them and how can we track them? So these, these, this report, this is out of uh, Rochella Povatsir's lab. They use gold nanoparticles. And they have been, they have been uh, shown to be promising agents for tracking cells in vivo or in the body in cell-based applications. But I guess the challenge was there's a, there was a challenge to develop a reliable protocol for cell upload with, on the one hand, sufficient nanoparticles excuse me, to achieve you know, visibility of cells. You need to have enough particles that you'll be able to see the cells. So here they describe this, um, uh, a new protocol where they can sufficiently label the cells with gold particles that will allow for uh, easy tracking. Where are they using MRI to trace them or PET? Uh, we have found concentration promote our results. Man, you really get me today. I'm CT sorry, imaging. Oh, so, Okay. Yeah, because it, that, which makes it nice because you know it's an easier test. CT. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Nature uh, letter. This is really cool. I was talking to Kristen Brennan about this, and just it came out. Uh, differential responses to lithium and hyperexcitable neurons from patients with bipolar disorder. This is out of um, Junyo, Rusty Gage, John R. Kelso, and Kristen Brennan are some of the last authors there. So this is looking at bipolar disorder. Um, you know. Did you know that 15% of these patients commit suicide without treatment? I didn't know that. It's a lot. Um, so it is, it's on the WHO, World Health Organization, the top disorder of morbidity and loss of productivity. So here they're using IPS technology. They have developed an IPS model, IPS-induced pluripotent stem cells, making stem cells from people, uh, for human bipolar disorder and investigated the cellular phenotype of hippocampal uh, neurons derived from these patients with bipolar disorder. And then what they, what they so they were able to make these neurons right from these bipolar patients, and then they were able to show that um, they were hyperactive. You know, they exhibited these overfiring phenotypes, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, it says hyperexcitability is one of the early phenotypes of bipolar disorder. And their model of IPS in this disease might be useful in developing new therapies and drugs aimed uh, at this clinical treatment. So, drug dis- use IPS for drug discovery and mental disease. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. And then the last one I'll end with. Is out of Conrad Hodelinger's lab oh, yeah. at Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Got John Rin, Gab Song, uh, and Alex Meisner, Gab Song, and Peter Parker on here. Peter Park, Peter Parker, 
Yeah. Peter Parker was Spider-Man? Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's not Spider-Man, but Peter right. Parker. So this is called The Comparison of Genetically Matched Cell Lines Reveals the Equivalence of Human IPS and ESC. So this is very cool. So how, how similar are IPS cells and ES cells? So people have tried to compare, but no one's really ever really compared the two, uh, two I, an IPS and ES from a genetically matched you know, in a genetically matched situation, because if I take Yo- if I make an IPS cell from Yosef and I compare it to an ES cell from someone else, there's always the variability of genetics that could make it different. So they really wanted to know how much does the genetic variation contribute to the difference. So they use genetically matched human ES and IPS lines to assess the contribution of cellular origin, right? Human ES versus human IPS, the Sendai virus of reprogramming, and the genetic background. And let's see here. Their data imply that the genetic background variation is a major confounding factor for transcriptional and epigenetic comparisons of pluripotent cell lines, explaining some of the previously observed differences between genetically unmatched. So obviously it would make sense that the, gene- the, you know, that the different genes and genetic backgrounds have a, a major role in the variability when you're looking at that. How do they get so, matched uh, IPS and matched DS? Is it like uh, PDG where they add the pre... Uh, was it pre-genetic, uh, the, the biopsy where they take one of the eight cells? Um, it's got to be one of those. I don't have access to this paper right now my, when I was at home. And, you know, this is one of our rants, like how I can't get access to the paper. But, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we I can find that. out. In fact, I would like to have Conrad on. We haven't had him on the show, so maybe we should get Conrad on and he can walk us through it and talk about what he's doing in the lab. He's yeah, they really must cool have guy, used that pre-implantation. They must have used that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis Uh and then I guess somebody was born and they took skin cells. I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't know. But it's a very cool strategy. I feel like he's done this before in mice, you know, where he's made like these genetically matched things in IPS and ES. To oh, if, do it the comparison. Was, if it was in mice, then yeah. No, this yeah. is human. But I think he's done it before in mouse. And now it's definitely human. I'm looking at it. So that's what, that's what makes it so um, that's what makes it so, so novel. I think it's very cool. Um, all right, so that's that's the roundup, man. That was a good roundup. We're we're, we're a little science heavy, but this is good uh, because we're going to get into the now the interview portion of the show, uh, which is brought to you by uh, Stem Cell Technologies. So Stem Cell Technologies wants us to uh, t- talk to everybody about um, their. They have these methods where uh, using their media's uh, and a kind of a. Um, um, like uh, kind of like a protocol or a tech bulletin that you can use. Uh, you can have weekend free culture of human pluripotent stem cells in M teaser or or teaser E8. Um, and uh, people out there growing uh, pluripotent stem cells know they have to be fed every day in most formats with most media's. And this offers some um, you know some protocols and some tips that will allow you to use those media's and not have to feed on the weekends. Um, you can go to stemcellpodcast.com. And there's a banner uh, right there. You'll see it. But Stem Cell Technology says weekend free HPS, HPSC culture. You can click on that and you can find out more information. And you can go in there and read about how you can do that. So thanks to them. Go check that out. And now we will move into the interview. Okay, yo, so I'm excited to offer our guests today a little departure from our interview segment on the, on the, on the subject we typically interview. Uh, obviously, we're a stem cell podcast, a natural science podcast. Uh, but today we're going to bring on a, a non-science guest, which I like to do because uh, I am a scientist, but that's not all I am, and Yosef will tell you the same. And, and so we like to offer, you know, have some people come on and give perspectives outside the realm of science, talk about what drives them uh, and, 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 you know, fascinates them about science and things like this. So our guest today, I'll give a little brief intro, 
is Dwayne Fernandez, who I can um, you know describe as a writer, director, consultant, and and probably a bunch of other things. And where I met I met Dwayne as a he was a keynote speaker at a meeting I recently spoke at uh, in upstate New York. And when I sat down, had some lunch, and we we talked a bit. I was immediately intrigued by his work and his background. Um, and so I'll give you a little snippet of the background. I'll let Dwayne uh, do the rest. And so uh, and this is coming from Dwayne's website. So, um, you know, Dwayne has worked with actors and filmmakers, studios and, and startup companies and things to, and different brands to achieve lots of goals. And he'll tell us about that and everything from launching new products or films into winning Academy Awards. I know that's what Yosef and I do in our spare time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dwayne is also an avid and successful photographer. He's published in many, you know, Billboard, Rolling Stone, and things like this. He's photographed many well-known celebs, Paul McCartney, Britney Spears, Dave Matthews. The list can go on. And in 2001, something that I find to be really, really cool, he conceptualized the, the left-field project aimed at capturing what drives the world's most progressive designers and artists and creators. Uh, and it began as kind of an inside look into the mechanics of inspiration, you know, searching for what, what drives people to create, something I'm really interested in myself. And so in 2004, he started the interviews and has now done over 400. And so here to tell us about what he has learned, about what drives people, uh, you know, to create and experience their full most potential, uh, Mr. Dwayne Fernandez. Dwayne, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Guys, thank you for having me. That was an incredible introduction, by the way. Um, I was like, man, this guy sounds fascinating. (laughs) I'm a horrible self-promoter. I don't know. uh, It's hard for me to even talk about myself. I'm really good at identifying things in other people and teams and dynamics. But when it comes to me, man, uh, you did a nice job. Thank you. Appreciate that. I got a lot of that from your website. So you did most of the work. I I just kind of strung it together in a paragraph. So let's start there, man. Let's start this. Why don't you tell everyone out in Stem Cell Podcast land and out there in podcast world, who is Dwayne Fernandez? Let's start there. You know, uh, it all comes down to being curious. I've discovered that that's probably the thing that drives me is curiosity. Um, the professional stuff, the industries I've worked in, um, I've been grateful enough to be part of because of just, you know, colleagues, people I've run into. And it's just, I, I'm curious. So I've worked in almost every industry there is um, only because I'm fascinated by what other people are doing, why they're doing it. And then how they how ideas move from A to B. Um, as a kid, I wanted to be an anthropologist, and uh, and then that kind of shifted as I got older because my dad's um, a consultant and wanted me to kind of go that route. Um, but it's curiosity. Curiosity drives everything, and so it goes from why people do the things they do, how we can make, how we can innovate the world that we live in. Um, I think our generation is really interesting because people want to actually make change and create change. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. So uh, give, give everybody a little bit of insight on what you're doing on a day-to-day basis for your, for your job, for your career, and, and how you've taken that. You know, Yosef and I are, are by, by probably born and by trade now to be curious people looking to search for uh, answers to questions that, that are, you know, basic science-oriented. So, you know, tell us about your curiosity and how you've put that into what you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, so from on a day-to-day basis, I'll go start from there. Um, I primarily work in entertainment. Um, I am a writer and director. Um, I'm that's kind of what I pursue ninety percent of the time throughout my work week. I spend ten percent in this 
still heavily in this curiosity area. So that is um, consulting primarily. So I'm working with you know tech startups, uh, studios, um, and it's identifying and forecasting, and uh, it's it actually spans a lot of different areas. Um, primarily, it's product development. You know what's going to be the next big idea, uh, whether that's a, a film, a book, an album. Um, you know, in tech companies, it's a, what's that next app going to be? Uh, but then also, I spend a lot of time in that area of helping people be more effective and efficient. So I work with, you know, C-level teams to uh, optimize their personal dynamics, help them become better and more efficient leaders, um, help them streamline their own company culture to allow for innovative ideas to foster um, without them having to apply a lot of pressure to force innovative ideas to be created. It's I have this philosophy of... Um, going in and creating a garden basically that allows great ideas to organically go to the top. Um, personally, I love stories. So I've always been drawn to film. Um, and so I've applied a lot of things I've learned over the years in my career to, uh, the film industry, um, for my own personal goals. I think that the, you know, films are extremely, everybody watch movie, watches movies. Um, so I like to apply those, the skills that I've developed, to like, what are the next movies going to be personally? And can I write those and can I direct those and can I make those? Um, that's a little bit about what I do all day long. And so I think from, from, you know, the perspective of, um, um, of scientists, we, we, you know, we try to create and we try, we, we tend to get, I don't know, maybe Yosef would disagree, but you tend to get into your own thoughts, you know, and you can tend to get into your own ideas. And uh, the point of science, at least, and I think of everything in the world, is to be open to having someone come in and tell you that what you're doing might not necessarily be the best way and or the correct way. And it's taking that criticism and, and adjusting and doing something different. So, you know, in your line of work, when you're when you're working with people or, or, or you know trying to to suggest or build this garden as you put it, do you get a lot of resistance? And what are some what are some things that you've you've learned to to kind of help people become less kind of dogmatic and open to to change? Because I think that's a big problem in our world to, today in general, but in particular science, it's very difficult to go against dogma. For sure. Um, every project has a lot of resistance, especially when I'm being brought in for those consulting things. I'm usually being brought in when there's a problem. And uh, teams uh, have a variety of personalities with a variety of goals. Um, so from, for usually I spend the first week having honest conversations with everybody, trying to drill down um, just to try to identify what kind of people they are, uh, what why they're at the place that they are at, um, you know, for their career, like why are they doing what they do? Um, that gives me that first week a lot really allows me to see where the uh, pitfalls are going to be. Um, and typically I have to overcome those by earning trust that I can, what I'm doing will actually help them. And, uh, oftentimes people think this type of thinking, um, that's a good word to describe it. It's that it's, uh, Chris, I think we've talked about this a little bit. Um, people think it's new age in a sense, like, Oh, you know, we, there's, there's an old school way of getting through problems. 
um, and you know we're going to do it. Uh, so when I get brought in, I have to overcome those immediately. And first of all, it's typically the older, honestly, it's a lot of older folks. <laughs> um, and they're one my age, I'm 39, and they're wondering well, how I can help them. You know, they've gone to school right. for 18 years. How am I going to be able to um, teach them something they don't already know? And a lot of times I'm not teaching them anything new. It's basically just realigning uh, motives and um, personalities and identifying those opportunities where I can streamline or overcome hurdles. Um, those hurdles are oftentimes uh, attached to ego um, or politics. And so a lot of times, I mean, whether it's science or technology, has nothing to do with the industry or the actual business that they're in. A lot of times, just interpersonal relationships. Um, so really, I become a therapist and offered. You know, I usually do these projects for three to six months, no more than six months. Uh, and afterwards, I usually help people one on one. They and it is usually the person who gave me the most resistance early on, as the person that follows up later on and says, "Hey, will you help me?" You know do this with my team or I love what we did on that on a larger level. Will you help me do it on a macro level? And do you, have you worked, I mean, I, I, I think I know the answer a little bit to this, but to tell the audience a bit, have, have you worked with in the, within the science sector? Have you, have you um, interacted with, I know you interact with scientists, but have you, um, have you, have you got a chance to get around the room with a bunch of scientists? Cause we'd be curious to understand from, from an outside perspective, what we're like, you know, I mean, cause we're, uh, I like to think that scientists are a difficult bunch to, uh, to, to try to convince that, uh, they should maybe be thinking about something else. Uh, yes, I've, um, you know, on a professional level, like actually with like a full consulting project, I haven't worked in the science community and it's something I've been very drawn to. I've been always interested in it from that being a kid and want to be an anthropologist. Um, I've spent, I've done, conversations with scientists i've done i've worked on parallel projects with scientists uh, and when we first met was really the first time i was completely uh, immersed into your industry and had the opportunity to ask questions that curiosity came around and uh, learn more about you know what you all do and you know to answer your question uh i was really surprised i'd say majority of the folks i met were really open to uh the com the things i was saying um once I answered a few questions <laughs> and uh, I think the it's interesting because technology has become a very open world where people want to work together. Um, and I noticed that in science be, because of the way you, be, you can become successful, um, you're kind of forced to work in a very isolated environment. Um, and that, you know, that's, you know, you, I had, I've toured the universities and I've seen the labs and I've seen how um, people don't want to know, share what they're doing with some counterparts. And I know that's not always the same thing across the board, but that's often the culture that I've seen. Um, and the, I think there's going to be in the next 15 years, we're going to see a lot of change where it's going to become a much more open community. Um, and I don't know, uh, you know, we've, we talked about this a little bit. I don't know what, it's going to drive that. I don't know what's going to actually push the needle to make people think a little differently. Um, I think it's the younger generation coming up and saying, it's not about uh, getting that thing published. For me, it's about solving a problem. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting to hear you say that you think uh, things are going to get more open over time because um, I I, th- I think like as people work, at least in the lab, I've seen over time that uh, people went from maybe listening to music at their uh, lab bench to always having headphones in and not really uh, interpersonalizing as much. And... Um, I'm just wondering, what, like, in terms of lab work, uh, most of these labs are not one uh, or two-person operations. It's a whole team. And um, when you have a team, you know, uh, even the greatest of labs have, like, interpersonal problems. And how key is it for everybody to get along for an organization to to be successful or is that just you know something that's nice to have but at the end you have to be goal oriented um i'm just wondering about that dynamic and how to is that a balance or or to be achieved or is it just uh we should just focus on our goals and these interpersonal relationships don't matter so much uh they matter they matter a great deal and that was the thing i noticed most um first and foremost was that you know, you, you, you raise this money to pursue your research. And I would say it sounds like a large percentage of that goes towards tools, um, manpower space to achieve, you know, what your goal is. And very little, very little goes to actual the human capital that you have inside your lab, those personal dynamics in your team. You know, when the people are the ones that are processing visually the information, the statistics, the research, the data, and they're being forced to be creative sometimes to think of new ways to solve a problem, you know, it's going to be the human element that's going to allow for innovation and the opportunity to see um, those possible wins uh, in the data. And if you don't, if you don't foster the, those relationships, if you don't encourage people to pursue their own sort of things, you're really limiting your opportunity. You're, 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 you're heavily focused. You're, you know, you're really investing in the tools where I'm the type of person like, if you've got the tools, fantastic. Now invest into your people because your people are the ones that are actually going to be able to make those tools great. And uh, a lot of times, um, it's it's not all times. It's always the people that are going to make something uh, wonderful. And that's and you know, oftentimes I actually refer to sports. And you look at uh, a talent of us, you know, a team. No matter if you're into soccer, football, basketball, you know, anything. The personal dynamics are kind of going to win a championship. You know, you can have pure talent, and pure talent are going to win games occasionally, most of the time. But it's really the chemistry between the the, the, the personal dynamics that's going to make a team great. Uh, and so, a lot of most people can usually get that analogy, especially in the business world. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. And also, like a lot of the issues that come up are like, you know, when a batter, you know, goes into a slump, and it's psychological. Um, so sometimes you might have your star person in your lab. You know, you start. You might realize, like, oh, they're not performing as well as I wanted them to be, and that might be creatively. That might be just met hours in the lab. That might be um, producing ideas, innovative ideas, um, and that's you know that's just something that's happening in their own personal life. So if you're you know if you're able to make sure that they come into the, the lab with the right attitude, and uh, they're encouraged to succeed and pursue their own goals. Um, and you're fostering all that sort of thing, you're going to, everyone's going to be running at an optimal pace. Uh, and it's un- incredible what you can do with just two people. And, you know, once you get to 10, 
the dynamics change and it's, it's more hands-on and you get to 100 in some of these tech startups uh, when I'm brought in. Um, I might be brought, I'm usually brought in after they've received some funding and they're about to go a little bit bigger. So you're talking like 25 people. When that company becomes 1,000, the culture is really important because culture is going to what it's going to help guide that company to success when they grow to a thousand new employees. You know, oftentimes money doesn't help solve problems; it actually creates a lot more problems. More human capital creates more problems. So if you have a lab with three people, six more people is not usually the answer unless you've got the foundation within the lab to allow you to actually, you know, have the right culture to achieve your goals. Mo money, mo problems, yo. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, this is an interesting little topic. I'm glad Yosef brought it up because one of the things that, you know, in graduate school, when you're going to get your PhD and you want to have a lab and that's your goal and you get there, one thing they don't teach you how to do is to manage your own lab, right? So, like, you know, one of the one of the defined endpoints of of a PhD, one of them, is that you can go on and run your own lab. But nowhere in any of that training do they teach you management, uh, teach you business, teach you finance, teach you how to run a small business and how to create an environment where people can work and thrive and be efficient. I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have. You have scientists running a business and that should be, that's great. We're smart, but we're not, a lot of them aren't businessmen by trade. And, you know, what I've seen and what I've noticed in my struggles just in running a lab and I have a small lab, you know, I have five, six, seven people that I manage is that, there's a balance there, right? You want to be able to get in there and give everyone a sense of in a sense of individuality, right? I think Yosef can tell you this, right? You want to feel like you are contributing to the overall goal of the lab and that you have your own project. But you also have to have them buy in to the fact that uh, they're not there for themselves. They're there for the larger purpose, and that is to fulfill the goals of the lab and ultimately help to cure disease. And so that's a very delicate balance to walk. You know, you don't want to be competitive within the lab. You don't want to have a grad student feel like they're directly competing with another grad student. But you do want them to know that their work is kind of going down a similar road and that they need to work together. So, you know, in these kind of situations, how would you how would you advise or give some advice to someone in this kind of situation to to create a culture that, you know, everybody should everyone has their own sense of individual individuality amongst a bigger goal of of, you know, teamwork. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you're going into it as a leader, you know, it's really it, I would spend a lot of time identifying what your goals are. You know, and that's, you know, sounds, sounds kind of generic, but oftentimes I've gone to places like where I sit down with a board and, you know, and say, so what are your goals? And everyone has different goals. And that's not a good thing. You know, you want to have everyone, it's great for everybody to have goals, but you have to have a collective goal for the business, the lab that everyone's trying to achieve. Um, and let that be clear, you know, like print it out on paper, huge paper, have it on the wall where everyone knows this is what we're coming into every single day to achieve. Um, and then know what like the core values of, your team is, you know, so here's our goal, but what, here's our core values. Like these are things that we're going to value here in our lab. And maybe it's not innovation, but maybe it's innovation in another team. Like maybe, you know, like our, you know, if you're coming in with your team and like, we're not here to be innovative. We're here to solve this very particular problem. We don't need new ideas. It's right here. We can do it. That should be the goal. Whereas some people might adopt the innovation philosophy. Like we need really different, big ideas, you know, that are, that we're, you know, that we can apply to a larger scale. Um, 
and then uh, then taking it down to a level when you start bringing your team members into identifying what they're what they are trying to achieve while they're there. So if they're there for six months to a year to two years, what are they trying to achieve? And outside of life, and if within the lab, it's really good to understand what that person's like. I'll actually come into places sometimes, have a conversation with a team. And then go out to lunch with the, their leader and, you know, talk like, oh, it's really neat that that person's trying to do that. And they're like, hey, what? Like, they're doing what outside of work? <laughs> they had no idea. Like, and I'm like, how long have you guys been working together? Like, oh, you know, 10 months. Like, how is it that possible that a small team of 10 people that you don't know what drives each person inside of work and outside of work? Um, and then once you spend, it really doesn't take a lot of time to do that. And you've got to kind of be a little, you know, you've got to be honest about it. You can't approach it in a very like, okay, let's just get through this phase of work. Let's just ask these questions, get them on paper, and then move on. You really have to buy into each one of your team members. And then once you have those answers, you knowing your budgets, knowing your time frame, you're able to kind of put together a, a series of milestones that the lab's achieving, the people are achieving, and then, you know, like, and you can vary that. So... And actually create it and have it printed and like everyone knows where we all stand on our, all our goals. Um, and those little milestones, those little wins mean a lot to the team and morale. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, there's so many exercises you can do with the team, but honestly, it's just getting to know one another and what drives each other. Hmm. So those trips to Six Flags, they really do matter. <laughs> they we're... really do matter. You know, <laughs> like uh, when, we, when Chris and I were at that conversation in New York, um, somebody asked me a question about, you know, what, what, what could we do as a team? And I'm like, you know, just, you can do the same amount of, you could do, say you have a meeting, take the meeting, go do somewhere else. Like go to LACMA, go to MOCA, go to a museum, like go change your environment every once in a while and go and do the same type of work in a different place. Um, or do some type of different work within your lab and shake things up. You know, like, uh, you can do a team building exercise within the lab, you know, like just don't make it about the work that you're trying to achieve there, like bring in something else and, uh, just have fun for a little bit. But, you know, taking the team out of the environment every once in a while to have these conversations and have meetings and going over the work, um, really changes, uh, and helps, um, really changes your, the the environment that they're used to seeing in and actually makes them it's for, forces them to think differently and it's it's the most subtle things can make a huge difference so i'm curious as a non-scientist what what do you know about stem cells what what's filtered through into your world as to uh stem the state of stem cells what their potential is um how, how, how's the field viewed viewed uh as an outsider it was fascinating because up until our conversation, until I saw Chris speak, I have actually not seen a whole lot of on stem cell research um, besides what was happening in the early 2000s when it was like a, a controversy about, you know, political point of views. And then it kind of just disappeared from my radar. I really didn't see it in my news, in my social feeds. I didn't know anything. I didn't know where it was until Chris started speaking on it. And my mind, I was, my mind was blown. I could not believe the place where it is now and how, uh, how different it was than what I thought it, it was, you know, initially. Um, and I was kind of shocked that I didn't know that. Like, how, how do I not, how is this not in popular culture? Like, how is this not things that are being talked about, you know, by the general news and, uh, without having to go to science sites to learn more about it? Like, why am I not seeing this in Wired more often or Fast Company or even like Inc. or Business Week? Mm. Um, so I was kind of fascinated that 
I have not seen much about it. Well, hopefully we could uh, help spread the word through this interview. Yeah, I mean, that's disturbing to us, you know, like we're, we, we try to take some questions from people, people writing questions all the time and, you know, asking, you know, it's exactly that. We sit here in this world and I get, I always think we're biased about the tremendous upside and potential to change medicine. And it's a real potential. I mean, it's not just, I mean, maybe it's a little biased, but it's definitely real and it's become a real field and a real fast moving branch of medicine. And, you know, when, when I go out and I'll talk to people about it and I'll, and I'll give them an overview topic, they'll just look at me and be like, wow, I have no idea that you can actually do things like that. And uh, it's sad to me. You know, I, 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 wish, <laughs> I wish there was more of a, a better way to get out into the mainstream lay world and, and teach them about what, what the hell stem cells can do and the potential. And Joseph and I had this little bit of a, a, a talk on last episode about getting it more integrated into schools earlier, you know, so that people from all, you know, as people get educated, it becomes part of the education. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe like Joseph, the point you brought up last time of it becoming such a real field now that it might, you know, pervade mainstream news and, and some more people will get involved. So, uh, one thing we wanted to ask you, Duane, we, we, you know, we know that you're, you're a photographer, Who's who's you know has you know a long list of of great subjects, and we were wondering, did you ever have you ever seen or or heard or would like to try to incorporate some kind of microscopy photos into your work, like you know making a making making something out of the? I don't know if you've ever seen some beautiful pictures that we take in the microscope under the microscope today. Have you have you ever entertained that and the idea of using uh, science in your photography? I, it was funny. It was after that, after our trip to New York, I, some of those presentations and seeing some of the photography and some of the video that was in there was, I had no idea. You know, I shoot video, uh, you know, and it was so funny because I was actually talking to some of the scientists before that, that brought me out. We had lunch the day before the conference and, uh, I didn't even think about it. We started talking and they're asking me what I did. I'm like, Oh, I, you know, I shoot f- photos, but really I'm writing, directing and, and, they were like, oh, are you out in the field? Are you, what kind of cameras are you guys using? And I started talking, like, these guys are really interested in the cameras that I'm <laughs> using. And I had no idea. And they were talking about resolution. And then I was like, I couldn't believe they, the information that they knew. And uh, so I was, I'm like, oh, now, and after the event, I'm like, that makes sense. Like, now I get it. But, yeah, I, I was so blown away about um, the technology that is being used in the lab. And, um you know, it's so funny. I'm fascinated by the details. Whenever I shoot a when I shoot a portrait of somebody, I always shoot a bunch of small details that are that they have with them, and I'm actually more interested in the smaller items that make up the person than I am the actual portrait. But people want to see the portrait. You know, like my audience, they want to see the portrait. They don't want to see the little details that I shot. But I'm fascinated. Like, you know, I ask them to take stuff out of their pockets, and I'll shoot. You know, whatever's in their pockets in their hands because I think that's more interesting. Mm-hmm. So when I went to those presentations and saw like how much further I can go inside yeah. and learn about a person like that is crazy. It was, yeah, I'm very interested in, it. and I was actually did a little bit of research on the, on the flight home about the cameras and the videos, video cameras you guys are using in the lab. So finally, uh, one sort of question we like to ask the guests is, uh, to tell a, a funny story. I'm not sure if Chris prepped you on this, but, uh, a lot, oftentimes we have scientists come on, you know, uh, professors and they'll tell a story about something that happened either during their training or, uh, something in the lab, stuff blowing up or whatever. But, um, as, as a photographer, has anything, uh, sort of hilarious happened over the years during one of your shoots? hilarious um that's a great question 
Uh, I yeah. think one of the most bizarre thing that's ever happened to me is um, this was pretty early on in my career, and I was shooting a lot of live. I was shooting live music at the time, so I was being sent out to these assignments to shoot, you know, big music uh, events, concerts, festivals, and whatnot. And I got this assignment. It was kind of last minute to go shoot the band Slipknot. And uh, I was like, I'm not familiar with their music. I think I'm familiar with the genre. I'm like, but I had no idea what I was walking into. So I got all my gear together. I go and, you know, I check in. And usually you go to, a, when you go to one of these events, you check in with the building. You know, if you go to like Staples Center, you go check in the building and then you go through security and they give you your badge and they let you know where you can be and where you can shoot photos. And it's usually the first three songs of any sh- uh performance is you it's that's usually how it works you shoot the first three songs and then you go away uh and you meet the security team you're like oh hey guys how's it going there's a bunch of guys that's doing this part doing the job part-time and then they're like oh you're gonna now need to talk to the slipknot security and i said they have their own security they're like yeah so that was fascinating so i go and there's a team of like 20 guys that are like ex-football players who are like in riot gear basically <laughs> and I'm like, what am I walking into? What is happening? Um, and they're like, just so you know, if we feel your life is in danger, we're going to pull you out of there. <laughs> I was like, why is my life going to be in danger? I'm in this beautiful arena. Like, what's going to happen? So, you know, you go up there to the front of the stage and you're in this barricade, basically. It's only like five feet from the front of the stage. Um, and they've got this big metal barricade behind you that's only like, you know, four and a half feet tall. So the fans are going crazy. And I go out there, it's in between the sh- their opening act, and uh, they just turn off all the lights. And everyone starts going crazy and starts chanting a bunch of really, like, dark things. <laughs> and then they just start throwing stuff. <laughs> and they and out of excitement, not out of, like, they're mad because their show's taking too long. I guess it's what they do. They start throwing whatever they had on them, beers, nickels, shoes, Everyone starts moshing. People are falling on top of us from outside the barricade. Uh, and it was, I just turned around to see, you know, 15,000 people losing their mind and about to just go into a full riot. And, you know, I just started taking some photos and then the, the curtain drops, the band goes on. And it's no, we were probably shooting for 30 seconds before we get pulled because they felt our lives were in danger at that point. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was, I've never done anything like that. And that was by far, I mean, I just remember like I sat at home and sat awake for like eight hours. Just, <laughs> what, what just happened? happened what, what just, wait, Slip, is Slip not the band with the wears all those crazy masks and things? Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 man. It only, so, it only took well, 30 seconds for you to them to feel that your life was in danger. Yeah. And then we just basically, they picked, like, one guy, like, almost picked me up, and he's like, you gotta get you out of here, <laughs> and takes me off, you know, exit stage left. And um, I was just like, what just happened? Had no idea. I got some great photos, though. Like, it was, a, an, I've never shot anything like it before from the crowd's point of view or the band. Um, but, uh, I was really impressed with the stage production, actually. Like, when they went on, I remember for those 30 seconds, I was just looking through my lens going, man, this is a really well-put-together system. And the, those masks, those masks that they wear, apparently, and I'm, this is probably not accurate, but a guy was telling me, he's like, those things are like $15,000 each now. He's like, wow. you know, they started off with, like, some pretty crappy masks, but now they've got these, you know, incredibly well-designed de- masks. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> Jeez, man, I don't know. I would never even, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I know uh, enough of Slipknot to just know that I probably wouldn't do well at that scene. I I don't know. I don't, I never listened to their music. I don't really know, but I I would, I I don't think I'd make it out alive myself. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, Yeah. 
but everyone for everyone out there um he, you know he's Dwayne Fernandez you can you can learn more about Dwayne you can go to dwaynefernandez.com he's on Twitter at Dwayne Fernandez um really really interesting and intriguing work um and hopefully hopefully what you say is true in the world of science down the line 10 15 years out we will come together as a group of scientists and a group of people for one common goal rather than uh individual uh purposes so Dwayne hey man thanks so much for taking a little bit of time out Thank you, guys. This is amazing. And what, I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. And I think it's extremely um, innovative. I mean, as, as based on what the community is doing, you guys are really outliers in what you're, you're pursuing. And I, I'm a big fan. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Have a good day, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take Thank care. You. Okay. So there we have it. Curiosity. Really, really cool, man. I mean, really cool. And, and Dwayne's got a lot of cool ideas. I'm going to work with him on a bunch of, you know, a new project and how we can help to maybe bring science more to the mainstream i feel like this podcast is geared a lot to science or scientists or people interested in science you know in the professional world but there's everyday people that are not that i hope listen to the podcast but we really like to get more things to them because science is is cool and um at least i like to think so but that was really interesting i'm glad he took the time to talk to some scientists and i hope everybody out there enjoyed he that ca- difference. he, he kind of reminds me of mr wolf from pulp fiction like somebody who comes yeah. in to clean up a situation yeah i mean like <laughs> that's what he's called a fixer yeah you know like he's called a fixer and uh that's exactly where he said the analogy was was the guy he's like a pulp fiction fixer so nice. uh thanks to Dwayne. you can check him out at Dwayne fernandez on twitter he's got about forty thousand followers so you can go go check him out so let's uh we're gonna rant it up here yos i periscoped yos giving me the ones in the first one he gave me we were gonna do so yeah, yos, so, go ahead. uh this one has been coming up uh for me lately since i started at a new institution and i have to get all my uh reagents and some of these growth factors you have to be very precise in the concentration of uh the molecule or the recombinant protein and so some of these vials, like I noticed, not uh, this has been a problem in the past where you have something that needs to be, say, 10 micromolar. And in science, we use this like uh, Latin U to show that as micro. And sometimes that U will look like an M or even worse, that M will look like an N, which is nanomolar. So you have everything looking the same. The M <laughs> looks like the U, especially when you're writing on these small little tubes, these little Eppendorf right. tubes. So you can't tell the difference between a U, an M, and an N because they all have like the same shape. So you're like looking and at this. And it's a significant, like it's a significant thing. I mean, it's not like, oh, you know, I'll just guess because if it's a micromolar solution, uh, it's micromolar. It's a thousand orders higher than a nanomolar solution. So, what you when you get confused and you don't know, you can't use it. I mean, yeah. you, you can't use it. You have to remake up a solution. And like the U, the U really is not a U. It has that little line that goes all the way down, you know. And then when you're like typing it, when you type it, do you just type a U at capital M? Because that's technically not correct either. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's Under, true. Like you know, but that's a. I don't know why. I, the little area to write on the little tube has always been a problem. <laughs> I know. You know. Like why can't they give you a bigger area to write? I mean, because that's part of the problem. You don't get the you don't you don't get the um 
what's the word I'm looking for? You won't get you don't get the resolution to make yeah. these small things. And sometimes you'll have like a marker that's been worn out, so it's like really thick font, <laughs> and you're trying to write this like tiny. Yeah, and it's all mangled together, like <laughs> yeah. U N, and and you're like, is that nanomolar or micromolar? And they're like, I don't know. It looks like <laughs> nanomolar. It could be micromolar. I'm like, well, you know, it's a big difference. You really got to help us out. I mean, is there anyone out there have like a better solution? Do you? Is there like a uh, people always want to get fancy with the way they label, but then it takes a lot more work when you got to label millions of tubes. Like, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, if like one of those uh, designations was like a T, everybody knows the difference between a T and a U. But sometimes on a file, you can't tell between a U and an N because the writing's so small. So, so like, small. Do I have a micromolar or a nanomolar? It's only a thousandfold difference. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's the thing. One N and an N and a U make the difference of a thousand fold. Yeah. It's not like a little thing where it's a capital and a lowercase or like a zero and an O. Like if you get it wrong, you just take a guess, you go back. Here, you'll be a thousand fold off when you add a solution to culture, put it in cells, and that would drastically alter the result. So, yeah, yeah man, I don't know what I want to hate on more, just the nomenclature or the the lack of area to write on. Yeah, you know, uh, actually, at NICE, they're pretty good. They have, uh, like, printed out labels. So uh, this isn't really that big of a problem. But I've had this in the past where I'm like, oh, did it? And it'll be my own writing. I'm like, oh, boy, did yeah, it? Yeah, it's most of the time your own writing. And you're, like, yelling at yourself, like, what the hell is this? Is this yeah. a U? Is this an N? And then you got to give it to somebody. And they're like, Chris, is this a U or an N? And then you look like an idiot. You're like, I really don't know. Yeah, I better remake I'm- it up. Then you got to make up a new stock solution and that sucks yeah sometimes i'll exaggerate that you uh with that that like that really long uh part yeah, of the, the U. Long, yeah. like the yeah 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 just, that you really know because the end doesn't have that yeah yeah so. that might be a way around that there you just go just like when someone looks tired you offer them a cup of coffee instead of telling them <laughs> to look tired there you go there you <laughs> go uh, man, so, well, thanks, uh, thanks to Dwayne. Thank you, Yosef. Thanks to everyone listening. Um, remember, the Stem Cell Podcast is presented by Thermo Fisher, and uh, you can go to stemcellpodcast.com and and click on the banner there and find out more about their products. As always, uh, for stem cell research, they're going to have that twenty four hours stem cells coming up, Yosef. So we're, we're gonna we'll be talking a little bit more about that. This is fifty seven. We're all done here. We're going to sign off. I'm going to work, Yosef, my man. <laughs> all right, talk to you later. I'll talk to you at fifty eight. Peace, man. All right, man.